Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and today I am talking with John Keg. He is the author of American Philosophy, A Love Story. It's just out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. There is a lot to talk about in here, and we're just going to dive right into it. But John, I'm, I'm glad you could come and talk on this episode. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the very beginning, which takes place at a not a kind of rock bottom, uh, an absolute rock bottom for you in terms of existential despair, where you are literally grappling with the question, is life worth living? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, this question is what I take to be the most serious philosophical question. Uh, you know, in, when Camus, uh, Albert Camus says that the one question that philosophers should ask is the question of suicide, I take this to be pretty much the same question that William James asks in 1895 when he asks, is life worth living? And James basically says the answer is maybe. And at first I thought that this was a complete cop-out of an answer, but in the uh, winter of 2009, I began to understand that James was probably right, that the, the best answer to this question is maybe. I'd watched my father die that uh, winter. We'd never been particularly close, but I watched him die, and then immediately after that I went through a divorce. I was at Harvard at the time uh, investigating the origins of American philosophy and thinking a lot about James, but I didn't actually understand him until um, I went through that sort of existential crisis. And then in the following fall, that's when the book really picks up, and I didn't discover the origins of American philosophy at Harvard, but rather sort of in the hinterlands of New Hampshire at the library of William Ernest Hawking. Right. And tell us a little bit about how you stumbled onto Hawking's Library and what Hawking's Library represents. Yeah, sure. William Ernest Hawking was William James's, one of William James's last students at Harvard. And uh, in the fall of 2009, I was up organizing a conference celebrating the 100th anniversary of James's death in Shakoro in New Hampshire, which is where James had a summer home. And I wandered in, I was part of the organizing committee, and I wandered into a coffee shop. And I bumped into a 91-year-old guy by the name of Bun Nickerson. And Bun Nickerson lived on William Ernest Hawking's summer estate on 400 acres of forested white, white mountains in, in New Hampshire. Bun said, oh, he has a library up there. You should go check it out. And it turned out that there were two freestanding stone structures, one being a mansion, the other being this library. Bun took me up there. It was abandoned at the time, and I... The first time I came across it, I let myself in. And inside, Hawking was both a collector of 17th and 18th century books. So first edition Hobbes, first edition Kant, first edition Descartes. But then also he had inherited William James's large portions of William James's actual library. So the books that James used, and William James being the sort of father of American pragmatism philosophy, so it represented both a nice snapshot of what American philosophy is, pragmatism, but then also the way that American philosophy is tied to the broader Western canon. This was literally, I mean, this is an invaluable treasure trove of American intellectual history. And as you've just described it, it's tucked away in a house, not even a house, just it's tucked away in the middle of New Hampshire, practically you know, exposed to the elements. That's right. So the collection, um, in terms of monetary value, the collection was worth a lot of money, probably half a million dollars to a million dollars in terms of just uh, the sheer worth of the collection, especially the sort of rare books. So when we were 
hunting through this, what happened was actually I used that library as a sort of escape to the divorce that I was going through at the time. And then my colleague, Carol Hay, a colleague at UMass, she and I started going up over the course of two years. We went from colleagues to something much more. But she actually discovered um, John Locke's Treatise on Government, Two Treatises on Government, first edition. And that book was sold for, um, you know, $60,000, $70,000. And it was just not, not that copy, but a first edition goes for about that. And it was just hanging out in a non-winterized, mold-infested library up in New Hampshire. So over the course of three years, part of the book, part of this book, is the story of saving those books, but also sort of saving ourselves from marriages that were, you know, destined to fall apart. But it really was also this um, story about two major themes in American philosophy, which are freedom and love or togetherness, and the way that those can function in a meaningful life. I definitely want to dive into those themes, uh, because I think that's a very important part of this story. But before that, I want to circle back to what you were saying about how you used this as a refuge from your crumbling marriage. And in fact, you write about how at the beginning... You didn't tell your wife or anybody else really about that library up in New Hampshire. You created a basically a safe space for yourself that nobody else knew about. And I mean, you lied to your wife about where you were going. Yeah, I did, and I'm not particularly proud of that. But I'm glad at the I'm glad in hindsight that I did, and it worked out the way it did. I got married when I was very young um, for the first time. Like many of us, got married probably too soon. And uh, the Hawking Library actually gave me a chance and the space to think through what freedom and love should really mean. But that involved uh, basically cheating on my wife with a bunch of books initially. What I discovered is that philosophy is not simply an academic discipline, but philosophy, especially American philosophy, should be best understood as both a way of life and as a type of intellectual therapy for the soul. That's what American philosophy, a love story, sort of tries to convey. One of the first moments where you hit upon that theme in the book is, you know, talking about the idea that one of the persistent themes of American philosophy from its beginnings has been about the opportunity for renewal and rebirth. I guess that's something that's, you know, tied to America's very you know, origins as an opportunity to recreate ourselves and, and recreate our nature. No, it is. And it, the thing that we often forget about American transcendentalism is that it's born of this moment in America's history where we might have achieved freedom in name or liberty in name uh, in the revolution. But in the 1830s, folks like Ralph Waldo Emerson are wondering what this freedom should really mean. And what Emerson comes to, and it's, it's a very interesting moment in the book, I think, and what I discovered at the Hawking Library is that freedom never is simply this negative liberty to be apart from others, a type of separatism or a type of exclusionary principle, but rather Emerson, who, who wrote Self-Reliance and is you know well known for Self-Reliance, also wrote this little essay called Compensation. And they, he intended them as sister essays or sort of paired essays. And Compensation says that no matter how freely you act, you are always acting in the context of a wider world. And that's an important, I think, thought to have, especially as we try to rethink or reframe the notion of freedom and liberty in the 21st century, and especially, you know, in the course of recent events. I was reminded 
when I was reading that compensation section, there have been a lot of essays in the last couple of months. Yeah, the term that we use nowadays is self-care. And a lot of progressive activists' voices saying that, it's like, you know what? Self-care is important. You need to step back sometimes. I wish I could remember what the origin of the particular quote was, but it was that basically self-preservation is a political act. Right. In, in, in times of crisis, for many people, self-preservation is a political act. And I think that uh, both understanding self-preservation in terms of carving out, as you said, a safe space for yourself is part of self-preservation and part of self-reliance. But it's also the recognition that the self is never just this hermetically sealed bubble or the isolated individual. The, the self, at least the way that Emerson, Thoreau, and William James, Jane Addams, these American thinkers thought about the self, they did believe in a capital S self. In other words, they believed in a self that um, was only constituted, basically constituted through our interactions with others. And so I think it's an important point to think about refuge or um, in terms of self-reliance, but then also about this broader notion of the self as being related to others. And in that sense, certainly the early American political philosophers and American philosophers in general were drawing a lot upon authors like Hobbes and Locke who you know, are in the Hawking collection, early editions, first editions in some cases. And there's a section where you write upon discovering, I think it's a first edition of Leviathan? That's right. Right. People who know, for example, you know, the Penguin Classics edition of Leviathan has that famous illustration of, you know, the Leviathan, the giant figure looming over the land with a chainmail armor. And when you look closely, you see the chainmail is the men and women of the state wrapped together around this mythical king's body. You know, it's a very vivid image about power and the state. But the thing that you draw upon in that section is a concept that I don't think gets talked as much about, at least in mainstream circles. Hobbes called it non-twoism. This idea that, I mean, I think the way that people do talk about it is you know, at, at its bluntest, it's the I've got mind jack sort of philosophy. It is, yeah. And I mean, most of modern philosophy, and when I'm talking about modern philosophy, I'm really referring to beginning in the 1600s and running through up, uh, up through the 1830s. Modern philosophy really had a concept of the individual that was uh, non-tuistic, which means non-other regarding, which means it's not that I particularly hate other people, I just never care about them that much. That I am rational and I am self-interested. Push comes to shove. You got it. It's going to boil down that I care about my own and care about myself more than others. And um, what we discover, I think, in American philosophy, especially in the 1830s and then, then more vibrantly in the 1870s and 1880s, is that thinkers began to question the assumptions of folks like Hobbes and, to an extent, Descartes. And the solipsism that runs through Descartes and Hobbes is, is, is something that American thinkers try to overcome. And uh, gosh, I think that it's really important right now. I mean, when we think about the, the necessities, what the present day calls for in terms of uh, how we view other people, not merely as obstacles or tools to be used, but rather people whose lives are as vibrant as our own. I think that that's, that, that that's something that we need to remember now. On the path to that, I want to hit upon something that you talk about here as well, which is the debt that American philosophy owes 
to Kant. You know, you describe how Kant really turns out to be the sort of like pivotal figure in which American philosophers, particularly in, in the 19th century, are reacting to him one way or another. And the point that you make is that Kant is really essential in this notion that philosophy is about waking up the human spirit and pushing it in the direction of, you don't use this phrase, but the better angels of our nature is a very common phrase to describe what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, it helped that Carol, the woman I fell in love with, was just a diehard Kantian. So that plays a serious role in the book. I mean, I take Kant more seriously, at least in part because I have somebody saying, you really should take Kant more seriously. But I think that there's something real to that, that Kant did not think that we were just beasts driven by our primal self-interest or sort of our base desires, but humans at our best could transcend that. And philosophy at its best could figure out or help us figure out what is most noble and worthy of preservation about human beings. And I think Kant uh, made that turn. Kant and then uh, Germans like Friedrich Schiller and then Coleridge, and then Emerson, in a sort of straight line to the Americans, have that idea. And then, as you say, you know, we need that kind of philosophy more than ever in this day and age. I think a lot of people have this very abstract notion of philosophy as, you know, a bunch of professors sitting around debating the nature of the existence of the universe. And that's certainly there. That's a corner of it. But it feels like American philosophy, in particular... As I've understood it, I mean, both from what I've learned about its origins here in this book and then through reading the 20th century pragmatists uh, up to, you know, what I would call sort of like a visionary pragmatist like Richard Rorty, is that philosophy, the purpose of philosophy is not to debate the nature of existence, but to figure out how we're supposed to live our lives, how we're supposed to, you know, we talked about it before, you know, this American philosophical notion of rebirth and renewal. You know, Rorty, I remember reading like about 10, 15 years ago, his idea was that it's like, it's not that we should debate, you know, what the, what human nature is. We should establish for ourselves what we want human nature to be and then go out and be that. What's interesting is that the American, philosoph- American philosophers like James, for example, and Dewey, John Dewey, are trying to revisit a very old conception of philosophy. Uh, Right at the beginning of Western philosophy, Socrates says, philosophy is preparation for death, which my students oftentimes think, oh man, that's bleak. But it's actually figuring out how best to live, such that, as Henry David Thoreau says, you don't get to the end of life and discover that your entire life has been a complete waste. I sometimes tell my students that philosophy is spring training for the rest of your life and that you should basically try to go into as many philosophy classes as you can when you're young so that you can then reshape your life on the basis of some of the lessons that you learn. This is not an abstract discipline. It asks the questions that human beings generally have to ask before they die. And it's better to ask those questions well before you die than at the very end. And in that sense, you know, talking about this notion about philosophy as a solace at a time when half of America is looking for solace in the face of what seems to be, you know, one of the bleakest moments in our nation's history, portending even bleaker moments to come. Right. 
looking for any sort of source of solace, as I said. And so what can philosophy do for us in these days? So one, one thing it can do is to actually understand the gravity of our situation. So it can sort of clarify how bad things actually are. And they're bad. And William James actually had a good sense of this. I mean, James struggled with personal depression for most of his life, but he was also very, very touched by the political workings of imperialism. And James directly fought back against those um, forces. But I think that philosophy gives us a way of understanding what to do in the face of desperation or desolation. And sometimes Americans aren't best at this. I'm thinking about, but I'm thinking about Rilke. Now, there's this amazing story about Rilke in, in uh, Rilke's notebooks of uh, Malta Lourdes Briga, where he says there's, it's just a story about a guy who is facing utter desolation. He, he thinks that the world possibly is meaningless. But he also says if that is possible, it's also possible that he himself, as an individual, might have the ability to do something about the meaninglessness. And I think that that's actually a, um, a line that runs through American philosophy as well. What are some of the places where you might steer somebody toward, and I'm thinking particularly of books and voices that are readily accessible, sure. not, not just in terms of availability, but in terms of tone, because as we said, I think there's a, a deep suspicion of philosophy in, in mainstream sure. American culture. And so what's something that you can hand to somebody and say, it's like, look, this is not academic. This is not quote unquote intellectual. It's smart, you know, it's smart and it's accessible and it will tell you things you need to hear. I would go right back to Walden. I mean, I, I would go to Henry, Th uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. I think Henry David uh, Thoreau basically gives us a picture of what economy means. It, it mean it, the, the word economy, which is one of the principal notions in uh, Walden, it's not about money, it's about dwelling, oikos. It's about how one dwells in a place. And I think uh, Walden is very good on that. I think another resource, uh, resource for our time would be uh, William James's What Makes uh, Life Significant. And in this, he sort of gives the other side of the coin of, is, is life worth living? James says that what, what makes life significant is experience, and not necessarily experience by oneself, but experience with others. And then finally, on a more political note, I think James's moral equivalent of war, an essay that he wrote in the face of a growing imperialism, and in the face of a population that was out of touch with the, uh, the folks or uh, people in the worst straits, that's an that's a essay, along with a certain blindness in Human Beings, which is another essay of James's. Uh, both of those sort of redirect our energies to our neighbors, who oftentimes are not regarded as, you know, heartfelt neighbors. Circling back to the personal story for a moment, you know, when in the course of your renewal and your rebirth through this library, when did you say to yourself that there was a story here worth telling and that you decided to, to sit down and start telling this story? I think, Kara, the, the, the salvation that occurs in American philosophy, a love story, is not some sort of grand, transcendental, otherworldly salvation. It's a type of real-world salvation where I could continue to live and find meaning. And I did that particularly in a relationship and in, in a new family. And one day, Carol said, you know, you should probably write about 
this. And I think that, that at that moment, we, I should write about the whole thing. I should write about my father and a divorce and a remarriage and then finally having a child. But she was really the impetus to sort of um, get this thing off the ground. And then I'm very grateful to Eileen Smith at FSG, who's helped me through the process. And then moving forward, you know, I think this is a much different question this week than it would have been like a week ago or two weeks ago. But what do you see for yourself moving forward, you know, both personally and in terms of the types of work that you plan to engage with in, in the weeks and months and years ahead? I think that there are lots of times in the history of philosophy where philosophers have had to stake a great deal on their thoughts. And I think that we're, we might be entering one of these times. And in those times, I think you need to set aside, you need to revise what you work on, which I actually am thinking about doing now. I was thinking about writing, or I am in the process of writing a sort of another sort of memoir like this one. But what it will have to be is it will have to be in some ways politically oriented or socially oriented, because I think it's wholly unacceptable for philosophers to sort of you know, ascend into the ivory tower when things are going really nasty. Well, that is something to look forward to, and I'm sure bits and pieces of that will probably be coming out in the years ahead. In the meantime, we have American Philosophy, a love story. It's a very powerful memoir and also a very powerful intellectual history. I've been talking with John Cake. You've been listening to Life Stories. And if you've liked this podcast, I hope that you might go into iTunes and give it a good review and slap a bunch of stars on it. That makes it that much easier for the next person to find it down the line. And if you subscribe through iTunes, you'll also get a hold of new episodes as soon as they come out. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening today, and I hope to join you again soon. Take care.